As outrage spreads over the killing of George Floyd in the U.S., protesters have taken to the streets around the world. Derek Chauvin kneeled on the neck of a black man, George Floyd, as he begged for his life. He stayed on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. But even that horrific number doesn't begin to tell you what happened to George Floyd. Doesn't begin to tell you how he struggled to get air in his lungs. How he told officers more than 20 times, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't Rarely have protests over deaths in custody drawn so many Australians. Their focus? Hundreds of Aboriginal deaths in jails and police stations in the past 30 years, with no police officer ever found guilty. No of people have gathered in Berlin city centre to stand up against racism following the death of George Floyd. This death of George Floyd really angered uh, people here, but it also vindicated them because racism is very much a thing uh, here. I am out here to get justice for my city. My city has been going through a lot of pain. This is not the first, second or third time. And this needs to stop right now. And this is the only way. What's your message to your American brothers and sisters? That we're with you and, and we love you and we want your message is heard over here. And, and we'll keep fighting the same fight that you are. Are we next? 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 The merciless killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police catalyzed the most widespread protests in American history. After decades of footage of black Americans being needlessly killed by police, America had had enough. Millions took to the streets as well as social media, calling not only for an end to police brutality, but also for a nation to dismantle the layers of racism that it was built on. Medicine has mirrored the racial injustice in our society. From research funding to patient care to life expectancy, there may be no population of patients whose health care and outcomes are more affected by racism than those with sickle cell disease. Hi, I'm Christopher Grant. Welcome back to The Sickle. Today, we'll hear from three patient advocates, Andre Harris, Justina Williams, and Dr. Carolyn Raleigh, and three healthcare experts, Dr. Louis Su, Joel Hell, and Amar Zaidi. Systemic racism has created medical disparities in the American healthcare system. In the final episode of this series, they'll explain how and what we can do to end it. SCD affects more than 100,000 Americans and over 300,000 people worldwide, making it the most common inherited blood disorder. Although scientists have been studying SCD for more than 100 years, the development of disease-modifying therapies has stagnated. Inadequate research funding is attributable at least in part to structural racism. 
I'm Joel Helley, and I'm a pharmacist by training, and I'm uh, Vice President of Physician Services at CVS Health. I think that, first of all, if you're within the care of a sickle cell center, I think that's the best place you could be, right? And the, frankly, the, the challenge that we have in today's environment is there are only 30 you know, sickle cell specialty centers across the country that are sort of recognized by the National Association of Sickle Cell, and it affects about 100,000 people. If we looked at like cystic fibrosis, which is another disease that we're very invested in, there's about 30,000 people that have cystic fibrosis, and there are 280 accredited centers, right? So nine times as many in centers across the country, a third of the number of patients. And so those patients are able to find care. So I think we, you know, as an industry, have an obligation to find a way to get more centers of sickle cell sort of open with doctors that really understand sickle cell. Cystic fibrosis is another inherited disease associated with decreased quality of life and shortened lifespan, but it primarily affects white Americans. Cystic fibrosis affects one-third fewer Americans than SCD, but receives seven to 11 times the research funding per patient, which results in higher rates of development of medications. According to a report from Dr. Alexandra Power-Hayes for the New England Journal of Medicine, the FDA has approved four medications for SCD and 15 for cystic fibrosis. So the question is why, right? Why is a disease like this underfunded? Those drugs that I mentioned, you know, that are newer, we haven't had innovation for many years. And, you know, the question is why? Is it, is it based in sort of discrimination and racism? Uh, we need to understand that. There are other, you know, rare disorders like hemophilia that have established a registry and a surveillance system. Um, and they have established sort of a federal and private funding that really helps us understand hemophilia so much better. There was one that was created now for sickle cell. So I think we're better now, but not nearly to um, what we see in hemophilia. It's really important for all of us, meaning big corporations like CVS and or local organizations to be helping to support these sickle cell organizations in their journey to help the government, et cetera, understand sort of the complexity of sickle cell and the, the funding that doesn't happen within this space. When it comes to funding for medical resources and research, it seems as though a hierarchy has been established. Dr. Lewis Sue explains. Because this is a rare disease condition in the United States, the amount of investment in research and healthcare insurance <laughs> accommodations are really not there because people say, oh, yeah, we have something that covers 99% of the people, but sickle cell is something that affects about one out of 360 African Americans. And so it gets under recognized, under treatment, under researched. Sometimes public awareness and demands for progress can lift an illness further up in the queue but much of the general public has less than a working knowledge on what SCD is and how it affects people. Social worker Andre Harris has made many efforts to garner support. It's to get more celebrities, get more public figures, get more influencers to talk about it, to bring it in the lighting. But one of the issues is, is that sickle cell is also a disease that comes with a lot of stigma. 
just comparable to like HIV AIDS. A lot of people who may be positive may not be comfortable talking about it. And, and a lot of people may not understand that a lot of people who have sickle cell disease are not comfortable talking about it are not um, comfortable even disclosing to people that they have it. There are a lot of people who have sickle cell that their friends um, may not even know that they have the disease. And so we also have to change those type of mindsets to be really able to push our cause really to the forefront. Um, And I will even give an example that um, in, in the organizations that I've worked with as an advocate, we've approached big name celebrities that, you know, um, claim, and I'm not trying to be shady when I say the word claim, but, you know, have claimed that they um, are advocates for, you know, healthcare or whatever have you in the health space. And so we'd approach them and say, hey, we'd like you to do this or do a commercial or do that. And we've had people to, you know, specifically decline and, and tell us, well, basically that this cause doesn't affect enough people or this, you know, isn't a big enough cause or this is just something that, you know, they're not interested in supporting, but then we'll turn around and see them on TV or on the radio, on the newspaper, on magazines, supporting another cause. Sickle cell is just not quote unquote sexy enough. Everybody wants to rally behind breast cancer. And and when I say this, I'm not trying to uh, make this a um, competition. Um, I'm not trying to pit one disease against the other. We're all trying to just survive. I just want people to really understand how the hierarchy goes is that um, there's a hierarchy of diseases. And some people see one disease as being more worthy of praise than the other. And if sickle cell, which has been historically stigmatized as a black disease, um, as a disease of people who are uh, drug seekers that constantly want to get high and try to to go to emergency rooms to seek pain medicine, then of course people are not going to want to rally behind that. Of course people are not going to want to jump at the, the opportunity to be an, an advocate to push that cause. Without adequate treatment, SCD affects all organs and is associated with decreased quality of life and a shortened lifespan. According to NIH... Advancements from the last 20 years has resulted in improved treatment and decreased mortality in pediatric patients, nearly to 95% who now reach 18 years of age. Today, life expectancy for adults with sickle cell disease is 54 years. Researchers are still working on finding a cure for sickle cell disease. Currently, a bone marrow transplant is the only known cure for SCD. The procedure gives a patient healthy stem cells from bone marrow, replacing marrow that is not working properly. While bone marrow transplants have long been known to cure sickle cell disease, only a small percentage of patients have fully matched eligible donors. It's not a reasonably accessible cure. Researchers and physicians are now looking toward gene therapy as a cure that's accessible to a broader group of patients. But trials are still underway. A long-standing ethical concern with gene therapy is that it will further advantage the already advantaged. Even for clinical trials, opportunities to participate in research has historically been limited. Once available, gene therapy will most likely be available at select medical facilities and cost a high price. There is also hesitancy for some patients, rooted in a long medical history of racist misconduct, like the government-backed syphilis trials in Tuskegee, in which black families were misled by healthcare professionals. 
As a patient coordinator for Piedmont Health Services and Sickle Cell Agency, Justina Williams hopes that more thorough research on SCD could lead to reliable treatments and better patient outcomes. When hydroxyurea came out, which is one of the very first treatments for sickle cell, my parents were really skeptical about it. And when I tell people about like research and stuff, I want them to understand that research is not something that the African-American community is really willing to do um, because of past research that was done illegally, you know? Now you have to sign consent forms and all of these different things because of what happened to our communities before. And a lot of the time, if you don't fit the criteria, then you can't be a part of a trial or you don't qualify for medications. I've had two of my hips replaced. I've had one ankle fused. I've had laser treatment to the back of my eye. I have hyperthyroidism, so on the waiting list to have that removed. The destruction caused by sickle cell, yet Toxo Dasanmi describes herself as managing the disease. So she's not actually certain she would qualify for the treatment because she hasn't had a crisis for several years. For the NHS to be asking me that I have to be sick enough, the fact that I have sickle cell is not enough. I have to have certain number of crises. I will think that the idea of getting on the drug is to get better, not to get worse before you get better. You wouldn't ask that of a cancer patient. You wouldn't say, oh, let's wait for the tumour to grow or spread before we start treatment. And you presumably don't want to have a crisis? No, I wouldn't come off, you know, blood transfusion to be sick just to get onto the new drug, no. Sickle cell affects everyone differently. So if you have people who are experiencing it differently, I feel like there should be research tailored to each person's need. Unfortunately, there are still societal impacts that make getting effective treatment difficult. Redlining, a policy that allowed banks to deny mortgages to black Americans who wanted to purchase homes in white neighborhoods, persists today in the form of high rates of housing insecurity among black Americans, including those with SCD. I'm trained as a macro, what we call macro social work, and we're really invested in communities and organizations, policy and advocacy work. And I say all of that to say, we have to be cognizant of how we provide social uh, resources to not only sickle cell patients, but chronic and rare disease patients, patients that are adults, um, they need transportation to their appointments, and a lot of them don't have it or don't have the ad- access to adequate transportation. They need housing, adequate housing, especially if they're doing like some type of curative therapy or like bone marrow transplant, and they may need to travel to another state, another city um, for months at a time, and they will need housing. For pediatrics, you'll have Ronald McDonald houses, but um, there are few and far between resources similar to that for adults. We need a social support network system where we are able to provide for those patients. If we know the, the demographic of sickle cell patients in this country, we would know that 
sickle cell number one is not a black disease, but it is disproportionately affecting the black community. That black and brown people in this country have been historically barred from accessing these social resources that I just talked about. These policies have led to cycles of poverty, food insecurity, fewer employment opportunities, and inconsistent health insurance coverage, all of which add to the challenges faced by people living with SCD. There was a day and time where we uh, had to sit in the back of the bus and sometimes couldn't sit on the bus at all. And even now, still in 2022, there is still fallout from the redlining that took place in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. Blacks were forced out into ghettos. And now in 2022, we're still dealing with that fallout. And why do I bring this up? Is because if we have people that are living in ghettos or living in uh, historically Black communities that were products of redlining and they have to go to a medical or academic medical center that's maybe an hour away, that's far away in a more affluent part of the town or the city or in another part of the state, they don't have the transportation to get there. They can't access that health care. So how good is the health care to someone who can't access it, right? Although SCD is a global disorder affecting people of all races, in the United States, as a direct result of the transatlantic slave trade, nearly all patients with SCD are black. So sickle cell disease is categorized as a rare disease. The interesting thing is of the rare diseases is actually pretty common. It's about 100,000 Americans that suffer from sickle cell disease. But there's one thing that's very unique about sickle cell disease, and that is this is the only disease that predominantly exists in the United States of, of America on the back of the transatlantic slave trade. That's Amar Zaidi, medical director at Agios Pharmaceuticals, Prior to his current role, Zadie spent many years at the Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit, taking care of sickle cell patients. What we have is a disease process that biologically is considered simple, but psychosocially is very complicated. It's a disease that is a victim of structural violence, and the warriors who suffer from sickle cell disease are really victims of structural violence from an entire ecosystem of healthcare. And, and, and that really impairs their ability to not only access good healthcare, it impairs their ability to be appropriately treated and optimize their treatment plan. It, reduces their ability to have mutually beneficial relationships within society, whether that's with employers, whether that's interpersonally, or whether that's within their home system. We'll be right back after the break. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. In addition to the barriers created by structural racism, access to high-quality health care for patients with SCD is also disrupted by interpersonal racism. Too often, patients with SCD simultaneously combat unbearable pain and discrimination when seeking medical treatment. We're talking about truly sickle cells, multicellular clusters blocking blood flow. That constitutes, for most physicians, an emergency, right? If that blockage is happening in your brain, it's a stroke. If it's happening in your legs or arms, in sickle cell patients, it presents as a pain crisis, right? If it's happening in your chest, it shows up as pneumonia, or what we say in sickle cell disease terms, acute chest syndrome. These all constitute emergencies. Now, what happens when you don't treat an emergency like an emergency? Well, you can expect that over time, as these insults to their body start accumulating, there's going to be a toll. We know that sickle cell patients suffer, for example, from silent cerebral infarcts or silent strokes. We know, for example, that sickle cell patients have reduced bone health because of the same reason. When sickle cell patients interact less frequently with the healthcare system, it's detrimental to the whole ecosystem. It's detrimental not only to the sickle cell warrior themselves, it's detrimental to the healthcare system because then when they do present, they're often sicker. They're often in a position where it's more difficult to help. Despite relentless pain, Some patients go as far as dressing nicely before going to the emergency department in an attempt to avoid judgment and receive better care. Hello, Fatima here. I'm 30 years old, I have sickle cell disease. I've been pregnant twice, I have two healthy kids. I'm married and I have a handful of experiences that just remind me about the state of our healthcare system, right? I always have to get dressed and look presentable when going to the hospital because that dictated the care that I received. Despite my pain, despite how I feel, no matter how uncomfortable I am, I still have to make sure that I am speaking softly, I'm speaking gently, that I'm not offensive, aggressive. I try to wear my wedding ring. I always try to somehow bring up college and college educated, which is so frustrating. Like, like this is a business. I'm paying you. So get yourself together and give me the care that I deserve. You know, the times I was pregnant, I just had to squeeze my, my wedding band onto my fat swollen fingers just by hook or crook because the respect I got was different. It just was. The term sickler, a word laced with racist overtones, is often used ignorantly to describe and dehumanize patients with SCD. I don't really have an idea of where the term sickler originated, but I can tell you that the reason that we get into trouble often in medicine and often in life is that we group together a bunch of individuals based on an arbitrary factor, for example, the color of their skin, 
and then apply what our reflexive thought process is to an entire group of people. Very similarly, we have literally peer-reviewed publications that show that physicians who use the term sickler are more frequently the ones who attribute negative attitudes or negative values to individuals with sickle cell disease. Anytime you start stripping individuals away from exactly that, their ability to be individuals, you take away their individuation, you're going to apply to them not only attributes that are false, you're going to treat them poorly. You're not going to treat them in a personal, thoughtful manner. You're going to paint them with a broad brush, do what you do for every patient, and not think through cases thoughtfully and sort of in a way that humanizes the sickle cell patient. This is why the word sickler is so problematic. It's because individuals with sickle cell disease are bigger than their diagnosis. They're human beings and individuals just like us. Among the dozens of conditions that are screened for in state newborn screening programs, SCD is the most commonly detected condition, regardless of ethnicity. Yet patients with SCD are often dismissed while seeking medical care when they're going through a pain crisis. So I'm asked this question a lot. Um, what can I do? How can I help myself? And the truth of the matter is it's absolutely horrifying that a sickle cell patient is expected to advocate for themselves in a moment where their body is being deprived of oxygen and shutting down. What I often advise people is that advocacy that happens in that situation is not going to go well. You're not going to be presenting your best self, rightfully so, because you're going through an emergency in the moment. I always advise people that the best advocacy happens when you're not sick. Interact with your healthcare system when you're well. Interact with your healthcare system and take them to task when you're not in pain. Um, find the champions within the healthcare system. Now, that's not always practical. Sometimes you are going to run into situations where you have to advocate for yourself when you are in an emergency room setting. And in that moment, I think what's important is for you to respectfully establish that as far as practical experience with sickle cell disease, the expert in that ER room is the sickle cell patient. It's the sickle cell patient who can and should be clear about how pain is generally treated for them when they come into an emergency room. It's important for the sickle cell patient to be well aware of, for example, what their baseline labs should look like. It's important for the sickle cell patient to be very familiar with the current standard treatment guidelines of sickle cell disease, no matter what type of complication they're seeking help for. It's very important to run through this scenario with their physician so that when this scenario arises, the sickle cell patient is ready to go. One thing to keep in mind always is that every sickle cell patient that interacts with an emergency room physician, the way that that encounter goes is going to change how the encounter goes for the next sickle cell patient. 
I'm pretty cognizant of this as a sickle cell physician because um, I spend a lot of time on the phone with emergency room physicians, fighting stereotype, fighting judgment, advocating for sickle cell patients. And I can tell you that negative encounters ensure that the next encounter with a sickle cell patient that physician's going to have is going to go poorly as well. So remember that you're advocating not only for yourself, you're advocating for the next sickle cell warrior that walks through that door. Keep that in mind as you approach that interaction. All I can say is I apologize that we're asking sickle cell patients to advocate for themselves when they walk into their uh, emergency rooms. In the late 1990s, increased prescription of opioid medications led to widespread misuse of both prescription and non-prescription opioids. Over time, there was a significant increase in overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids, like fentanyl. From 1999 to 2019, nearly 500,000 people died from an overdose involving prescription and illegal opioids. But people with sickle cell disease aren't fueling the opioid epidemic. If anything, they've been caught in the crossfire. When you think of patients who have sickle cell, you know, it's primarily impacting people who are Black, African, South American, Caribbean, Central American descent. And, you know, we've often heard from those folks that when they go to the emergency room in, you know, terrible pain, sickle cell causes, you know, probably the worst pain of, you know, anything that is out there. And they go to the emergency room and they often get treated like drug seekers. And so I think we have to ask ourselves why, right? They're primarily uh, black people that are walking into emergency rooms and or pharmacies and or, you know, wherever to get help, uh, urgent care centers. And, you know, the physicians that work there may have not had a lot of training within uh, sickle cell disease. I know for me as a pharmacist, uh, a hundred years ago, I had, you know, a little bit of training around sickle cell, but not enough to understand the when someone is in crisis that the pain that they're going through. And, you know, through the opioid crisis, and there were a lot of drug seekers out there. And I think there's a basis of racism within the fact that someone walks in a lot of a pain and is looking for opioids and or help with that pain and are discriminated against, um, you know, with a disease that's a terrible, terrible, terrible disease. And so, you know, first of all, we have to look at ourselves to understand what that is. And then, you know, more importantly, how can we provide additional education for physicians, for pharmacists, for nurses, for any clinicians that are out there, even the folks in the hospital? And I'll tell you that I, you know, I talked to a nurse uh, who I know at work and, and she had listened to a different podcast that I had done. And she said, Joel, like, I feel so terrible. I used to work in the ER and these sickle cell patients came in and I knew they had sickle cell. And I thought they were just looking for opioids too, because I didn't realize, you know, I didn't have much information about sickle cell and realized the immense kind of pain that they were in. And so, you know, there's a lot of work that we have to do in, in sickle cell and in disease and in, you know, the basis of discrimination and racism that may be behind it. Over the last three decades, as the opioid epidemic tripled in the last three decades for the general population, over that same time period, deaths from opioid use in the sickle cell population remained close to zero. 
People who are in serious pain, like sickle cell patients, need opioids to feel better. They, that, that's the best that we have to offer them, and they absolutely have the right to have access to effective and high doses of opioids. Patients with SCD are often described as drug seekers and accused of faking their pain, which results in inadequate treatment and more suffering. Because of the additional stress of perceived racial stigma, many patients choose to avoid care altogether, further increasing the risk of life-threatening complications. Dr. Carolyn Rowley has been providing housing and healthcare resources to patients with SCD through her nonprofit, Cayenne Wellness Center. She has seen many patients come and go. She recalls the experience of one of her earliest patients, Bobby. When I moved back to California, he was my first patient. Bobby was 17, 18 years old. He was in the hospital for pain. His pain was being relieved, but he refused to go and he wanted to die. And I remember going up back and forth twice a week. The hospital did eventually move into a convalescent hospital. My plan was to, um, you know, get in there and let him know that life was worth living. His plan was to not do anything, not move, to allow his body to atrophy. So I remember doing my holistic health and let's see what we can do. And then finally he said, so Dr. Rowley, can you guarantee that I would never be called outside my name? And he meant being called a sickler, which is like the using the N-word, and a frequent flyer. And I said, Bobby, I can't guarantee that no one will ever stop using that. But what I can do is I'm an advocate. So when you go into the hospital, you can call me and I'll either drive out or I'll call and we'll mitigate that situation quickly. But I don't know if I can ever stop people from using or referring to you as sickler, as non-human or that you'll hear people saying frequent flyer, uh, but we can educate. He says, so can you guarantee that if I stay alive that uh, I'm going to be believed and I'm going to get my pain under control quickly because I'm going to be believed? And I said, well, again, um, you can always call us, but no, I cannot guarantee that every time you go in, that they will believe you um, and give you what you need. However, again, we can advocate and let them know persons with sickle cell disease should be fast-tracked and this is what you normally take, et cetera, et cetera. But that wasn't good enough for him. Finally, um, I had to have a, a moment of reckoning it came to me that I, I just needed to be a friend because he was resolved to doing this and that my answers weren't satisfactory. That was a very tough moment for me, knowing that he was resolved because we hadn't come far. So I still wound up going there twice a week, just talking and finally asked, so what is it that you would like to do that you haven't done? 
And he said, you know, I've never been to a theme park and I've never uh, been to the beach. So I recall speaking to the mom and she made sure that he went to the beach before he passed on. And so all what we do was dedicated to Bobby and others. Uh, what's sad for me is he was 18 years old. I don't think people understand, so let me really try to make it plain for people. Um, I was 18 once as well, remember? I also didn't, at times when I was in pain, didn't want to live. So what would have happened if all of us just were resolved because of what we encounter when we go to the hospital? Um, I had been, in my lifetime, physically abused by nurses, of course not believed, accused of being a drug addict. There was a time when I thought, I'm going to die in this hospital. I felt that way until I changed my medical home. So what if we had all died before our time? Um, there wouldn't be many of us here to be able to keep things going. So that's why, for me, uh, talking about Bobby is very emotional because at 18 years old, he couldn't see beyond what was happening. And I had done some living because, again, I managed to, to change that and wanted joy and wanted peace. And so I've had a beautiful life. I've traveled the world. And that's why it's so sad, because some people get so resolved and all we can do is hope and pray that we can have some level of um, influence. But he was resolved and perhaps rightfully so, because who wants to be called outside their name? Um, who wants to be looked at as inhuman? That's how we're looked at. When you're calling us these names, um, but yet they get away with it. It happens every hour of the day, every day, and they're getting away with it. They're getting away with these biased thoughts, these prejudices. I don't even want to call it treatment, this non-treatment of giving people less than what they ask for. You know, I don't think about it often because uh, I'm living for today, you know, right now, and I enjoy every moment, but I, I can relate to my fellow sickle cell warriors who are going through the storm now, it's very, very real. What has happened, what continues to happen, and what we're doing to change that. The patients and caregivers you've met throughout this series are working daily to improve the lives of those with sickle cell disease. In order to improve their outcomes, hospitals and clinics must be safe spaces for patients with SCD. Unconscious judgments and implicit biases can be exacerbated in busy emergency rooms, clinics, and wards. Healthcare providers must be open-minded and self-aware as they care for patients with SCD, recognizing their own implicit biases and making a conscious effort to treat patients equally. Providers who develop long-term relationships with SCD patients must be willing to have open and honest conversations about race and the impact of racism on patients' lives. 
To end this series, we leave you with a final call to action from each of our guests. In the meantime, you know, when I think of sort of being a pharmacist, there are other tools we can help to educate you know, primary care doctors about sickle cell um, through things like continuing education, uh, through conversations with our nurses, through the EHRs, the electronic health records today. We have an opportunity to provide more information in there. Our digital tools that we have where we can uh, talk to patients and provide them information which they could share with a doctor if they get to a place where, you know, the doctor um, doesn't have enough information. And then I think, you know, the local organizations, the local sickle cell organizations are extremely important. You know, there's 53 of them across the country and they can really help those folks in those geographies to get to the right doctor where they will get the right care, number one, and get to the right place when they're in crisis so they won't be treated uh, terribly and, you know, as a drug seeker, et cetera. Blood transfusion is sometimes extremely helpful for somebody with sickle cell, either for an emergency condition or to help prevent organ problems. And blood banks are always in danger of running dry. And especially right now during COVID, it's been extremely, extremely difficult to keep blood banks supplied. And the only way to do that is with volunteer blood donors. So that having blood donations is one way to indirectly help people with sickle cell disease. We really do need to have more people that are educated and that are in the forefront um, talking about it. And I really think that will change the narrative. That type of stuff does impact policy. Um, if, if policymakers are not aware, then they're not going to care. I, that's what I really think needs to happen. We really need to find somebody who's committed to elevating and amplifying the sickle cell community. Find the local community-based organization. Meet with them. Talk with them. Understand sort of how things are in the city that you're in. The community-based organizations are the beating heart of our sickle cell disease communities. And they have a really good sense of what the pressing needs are in that moment um, for any given community. I, I would strongly encourage interacting with um, your community-based organizations as much as possible if you're trying to make a meaningful impact in sickle cell disease. Knowing your trade status would be great. Um, and this is just for the purpose of you making, in terms of moving your life forward and starting your family, to have education behind uh, knowing that, okay, now that both my partner and I have um, the trait, now you know what your chances are. Sickle cell is considered a rare disease, but I really feel like if we do more digging and find other people, it wouldn't be considered a rare disease. So people would know what it is, like they know what diabetes or cancer is. It is sad that a lot of people still don't know what sickle cell is. Like they just think it's a black disease, but it's really not. It affects everybody. We need more notoriety about this disease and who it can affect. I'm Christopher Grant. Thank you for listening to The Sickle. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this series. The Sickle is a production of Offscript Health. Our senior producer is Brianna Seeley. Our assistant producer is Joey Brenneman. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. All views expressed by our guests are their own. Check out our show notes for information about the clips and music in the series. For more information about this series, 
visit thesicklepodcast.com. That's thesicklepodcast.com. For more information about the Sickle Cell Disease Foundation of America and how you can take an active role as a sickle cell patient advocate, visit sickleceldisease.org. That's sickleceldisease.org. For additional information about Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.